0: Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams, and not simply lay on the couch and refresh Twitter and think about the coming constitutional crisis. So this episode, I'm going to be talking about one of the big interventions that I think that I'm making. And we've touched on this question a lot of times before, but I think it's going to be useful just to talk about it in one solid place. And this is the problem of modernity and liberty. So, the old story of modern history portrayed the past 200 or 300 years as this slow unrolling of various human liberties. We have the enlightenment leading to uh, the expanse of modern science. We have uh, new kinds of political formations leading to the slow buildup of worldwide democracy. We have uh, new kinds of permissive institutions that allow the development of capitalism. From another perspective, we have a working class movement Movement that uh, organizes itself and through its force and fighting eventually overturns the order of many countries and promotes communism. In all of these stories, even in national histories, we have a story of progress. And a great deal of this progress has, as it's, you know, as the thing that it's explaining. A lot of the good things about the modern world. We are certainly materially wealthy. We are taller than people in the past. We have better teeth. We live longer. We are not worried about untimely death. We are more educated. We may even be smarter. We uh, definitely have access to more books, more goods, less pain. We are more free. We can go where we want. We can hop into a car and drive to, you know, anywhere that we want to. We can buy a plane ticket, those of us with disposable income and cars. And there seem to be even deeper, more fundamental freedoms of the modern world. Slowly and unsteadily and unevenly, but seemingly, the people who have been discriminated against are getting less discriminated against. In American history, the treatment of African Americans through fits and starts is getting more free. In world history, women are uh, increasingly able to have the same opportunities, education, jobs as men. These are not complete stories by any means, but it's part of the narrative that we tell. When we go out and protest and say that something is backwards, that we, when we say that you know, right-wing opposition to gay marriage or to the rights of uh, trans people, when we say that that is backwards or anti-modern or against progress, we are really participating in this idea of history that shows it is slowly leading towards human freedom. Like Martin Luther King said, uh, the uh, path of history is long, but it arcs towards freedom. When we look at this story from the perspective of environmental history, however, this story of increasing human liberty seems disturbing. Because at the same time as all these developments are happening, we are also increasingly exploiting cheap energy. And this leads to the simple question. Are modern liberties the result of a slow civilization of the world, or are these human liberties simply the result of burning fossil fuels? If it's the latter, then terrifyingly, when the fossil fuels run out, which they will, we will lose our liberty. Democracy, equality, scientific progress, they may all just slip away. Now, one of the most trenchant descriptions of this worry is from Dipesh Chakrabarty, uh, who's a post colonial scholar. And in a great essay, he brings up this question of what the Anthropocene does to the history of human liberty. Um, And he seems to advocate for historians confronted with the Anthropocene to connect the history of, of, of nature. Uh, you know, geology and biology and ecology with human history. But that requires us to zoom out. That requires us to tell a history not of individual peoples or disadvantaged groups or of uh, particular moments in time, but it requires us to tell a history on the same scale of the environment as humans change. It requires us to tell a story of history about the species of humans progressing through the earth. And when we do that, we seem to diminish ourselves. Now, here's some concrete uh, examples of how this happens. Timothy Mitchell in his book, Carbon Democracy, argues that a lot of uh, the stories that we tell of the expansion of Western democracy are really stories of... uh, particular moments in which energy regimes needed to pay attention to workers. He has this big question of why is it that countries that seem to have a lot of oil also seem to not have democracy and his argument is this democracy comes about in most western european countries during the coal era and it comes about during the coal era because coal is punctiform It, it, it it is scattered throughout the earth it's heavy it requires people to move it uh, to actually physically move it, to, to make it work. And so there develop a number of bottlenecks in the system of production around coal fields, around transportation infrastructures. And these, at the turn of the 19th century, provide working class political movements with the opportunity to sabotage the global capitalist system. They can strike, they can um, you know put up a picket line, or they can break things. And this forces the powers that be to advance their demands, to allow for there to be more democratic participation. Oil, on the other hand, does not have the same opportunities for sabotage. Oil is gathered in a very small number of places that require massive amounts of geopolitical strength to hold on to. Oil is in deserts, in isolated places in the world, in the middle of the ocean. And oil is very easy to transport. It is a liquid, so you can pump it through uh, pipelines. And it is much more dense, uh, it's much more energy dense than coal is. So it's lighter, so you don't need as many people. You can just, you know, imagine this by thinking of your car, which is an oil-powered thing, and thinking about how much human effort it actually takes to run it. And then thinking about a locomotive, a steam engine, That requires actual people to actually physically shovel in coal into the furnace to make it go. And so for Mitchell, the whole story of, you know, uh, democracy is uneven. It's geographically uneven. It's only in those places that have this particular kind of industry based on coal fired stuff. And it's contingent upon energy. It's contingent upon the energy regime. Another uh, example uh, of this is to think of uh, explanations of why women start to have a greater share in the public sphere in the middle of the 19th century. And to do this, we might go uh, to John Stuart Mill's um, uh, essay on uh, uh, the rights of women. And in that he argues basically that it's energy, that it's coal. He says that, um, the reason for the initial reason for, uh, uh, the differences in the sexes is that men are stronger, physically stronger. And so they're able to, uh, be more successful in the more barbaric ages where physical strength is necessary for war and for industry. Now in the modern world, Mill argues back in the middle of the 19th century, Muscle is not actually that important. We have machines to do what muscle does, and so men and women can be equal. And we've seen this story in my tales about modernity. I argue, uh, sometimes trenchantly, that uh, women were locked out of the public sphere for a long time, and they developed an alternative domestic public sphere. But this had to wait until domesticity was open to more women and it was open to more women not because of a political development about people changing their ideas about what domesticity was it wasn't you know developed because of a class argument about who was able to you know be respectable it developed because of the advance of a bunch of labor saving technologies that meant that you needed fewer human hours to keep a house clean it happened because of indoor plumbing and washing machines and vacuums and uh, central water heaters and uh, the decline of coal dust in the air that meant that you know, people had to clean less we can see this story again in in the history of childhood education. One of the things that we've discussed many times is how the concept of the child changes throughout the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Children go from little humans who have to be educated by society in order to participate in the life of work. And this is why for people in the 18th century, sending children to factories was not a hideous thing. Sending children to factories was a charitable thing. It taught them the discipline and the order that they would need to survive, and it gave them the money that they could use to help their families. In the 19th century, this begins to change. Children start to be thought of as a special part of human life, that they are you know a new kind of category of being that deserves to be protected, and part of this protection is to be protected from the world of work. Now, this was a political development. This was something that was pushed by working class political associations so that men would not be outcompeted by cheaper uh, child labor. But to understand how this could happen, we have to reach into the uh, uh, the ecological arguments. People in the 19th century, were able to work harder because they had cheap energy. And this let them do the, you know, fairly uh, luxurious thing of doing, of, of saying that child labor, even when it was, you know, possible, was something that people would not do. Um, we can see this this connection between energy and human liberty, perhaps most clearly in the population of the world today. We have something like 8 billion people on Earth. This is strikingly different to the billion people on Earth in 1900. And this happened because of cheap energy. It happened because the Haber-Bosch process allows human beings to artificially create nitrogen through using a ton of energy. And this artificially created nitrogen allows us to escape the nitrogen cycle. That is the reason why you and I are alive, most likely. And that is definitely a story of energy. So this leaves me stuck. This leaves me worried. Because I think that we cannot have the society that we have without cheap energy. And yet we need to lose our addiction to cheap energy. Lots of back-to-the-landers argue for us just to cut off our addiction to fossil fuels, but that implicitly means that we drop the population of the world by 90%. And that means chaos. That means political division. That means slavery and genocide. And I don't want that. And yet, it's hard to think of the world that we live in now, where we work and consume the amounts that we work and consume for 200 more years. It's hard to imagine it for 50 years. I personally think that I will die before seeing the uh, great change happen, but I don't think that my children will die before the great change happens. And from a historical perspective, this just makes me feel stuck. And that's what I want to do in my dissertation. I think that my dissertation research opens up this possibility to look at the question uh, of the links between human freedom and cheap energy. Because we know that it exists. We know that we can we can associate these two things together, the rise of human freedom and the rise of cheap energy. But there's not been a sustained research program into this question. And I think that my study of uh, civil society in the 18th century actually has a really good moral that can help us imagine a political future with uh more expensive energy. The thing is this. In my story, what you get is a expansion of organizations in the early 18th century. Uh, these happen for fun. These happen because people like to organize themselves together. People like the pleasures of association. There's a knock-on effect that they help people uh, do more things at greater distances. When these organizations are hitched into the cheap energy economy, they are pushed even further into specialization, into geographic reach, and into power. And they become the organizational world that you and I live in. They become capitalism. They become the network of companies and civil society organizations and governments that control most of our lives. And they are the operating system that explains why we work so much and why we consume so much. We consume so much because there are marketers telling us that we need to consume. We consume so much because consumption is one of the ways that the organization that undergird our society measures its success or failure. We consume so much because we've developed the identity of consumers as political creatures. We consume so much because our public spaces have been organized organized so that a lot of our interactions with one another are predicated on consumption just think of you as a teenager going to the mall to hang out with your friends or you right now going to a bar to hang out with your friends these things are all consumptive uh, uh, public spaces and so from this perspective it seems that a lot of these organizations are are inherently connected with cheap energy but I think that there's a different moral. I think that there's actually a positive story to this because the rise in civil society that I chart happens before cheap energy. And the civil society organizations that I identify as operating from the love of the pleasure of association are popular before. Uh, The industrial revolution happens, before cheap energy starts to change things. And this offers perhaps a utopian, but at least an alternative conception of how humans organize themselves. We might imagine a future where people do not work in for-profit companies and we do not orient our lives towards consumption. Instead, we work in civil society organizations whose main goal is not production or consumption or social change, but rather solidarity and pleasure. And thus, a lot of our lives are reoriented towards status within these organizations, towards pleasure in these organizations, towards all those things that we do in organizations, but not towards actually making stuff and consuming stuff. And I think this is helpful because it allows us to think of a world in which we can survive with uh, the limited energy that renewables are going to give us. Uh, And if I'm right, and that a lot of modern freedoms are generated from these civil society organizations... If we have a rich civil society that is you know, uh, uh, not productive and consumptive in the same way that capitalism is today, then we might still be able to cut the fossil fuel addiction while still preserving our freedoms. We might call this an advanced renewable economy, jumping off of uh, E.A. Wrigley's uh, uh, dubbing of, of pre-modern economies that is, are advanced- Organic economies. And so, in the, this advanced renewable economy, we can imagine instead of production being pushed by uh, physical capital and cheap energy, we have uh, organizations using social and cultural capital to produce ideas, events, music, and art. And if I, you know, if you think that this is too utopian, and it certainly is, but if you think that it's too utopian, think about the sort of jobs that people have today. There's the rise of the fake job, the social media manager, the, you know, HR rep that we know are simply there just because of organizations' uh, uh, ritual adherence to them. And the fact that most young people end up getting fake jobs that don't really do much to the economy should make us realize that the economy right now is weird We don't need workers. We don't need manufacturing workers. We don't need to, you know, consume as much as we do. So if we consciously reoriented our economy towards the creation of cultural goods rather than physical goods, we might just be able to continue working and consuming and playing and enjoying ourselves without the relentless hunger for energy that we have today. This view also suggests some cautions. The history of civil society organization shows where this can go wrong. Now, first is just a, a simple problem. All of those civilizations that have managed to survive with heavy resource constraints have done so at the cost of human liberty. Japan in the Tokugawa, uh, some periods of Chinese history, uh they all require intense social control. And that intense social control seems poison to the kind of liberal freedoms that I'm talking about. So in addition to thinking of a new way of working and consuming that privileges social and cultural capital rather than material objects, we also have to imagine forms of social control that are not as oppressive, that are more voluntary. Uh, But that does not See, that, that really does seem utopian. The second is that all of these groups will have their problems. All groups we know work by excluding people. And these civil society organizations are no different. A big part of my story is that they exclude women and uh, poor people and that this generates long-term differences in social capital that are damaging for people for a really long time. We should not be under any illusions that these civil society organizations will be, uh, you know, decent. They'll be like fraternities filled with broy, exclusionary jocks. And how to solve that? I'm not sure. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, tweet a question to me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E. Thanks to Duncan Barton for the image and thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music. I will be back this afternoon with more stuff about energy and society.